ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hey everyone, it's Jonathan Tepperman, editor in chief of Foreign Policy Magazine, and this is FP Playlist. Each week, I'm going to help you make sense of the crazy mess of podcasts out there by recommending one show from somewhere around the world. This week we hear from Things That Go Boom, a show that was launched in 2018 by Lacey Healy. Back when the show was born, Lacey was working at the Stimson Center, a DC-based think tank that focuses on international security. Here's Lacey with a little more about the show's origins and the episode we're about to hear. Hey, Jonathan, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, Things That Go Boom is a narrative national security podcast. We try to uh, dig deeper into the policy issues of the day, foreign policy and national security issues. And uh, we try to do that by looking at human stories and talking to real people and uh, also talking to experts about you know what they're thinking about and how they're thinking about things, asking tough questions, and uh, you know really trying to get deeper into the stories than you might be able to through, you know, just an interview or uh, just a conversation with an expert. Um, I, w- I really started this this show uh, three years ago, about around the time that I founded Inkstick Media. Um, I spent a lot of time as uh, an analyst um, working on defense budget and uh, nuclear weapons policy. I was most recently at the Stimson Center. And I, what the, one of the reasons why I really came to this is because I was sitting on my perch at the Stimson Center uh, as an analyst, you know, pitching my own work to places. And I, I found that um, there there wasn't uh, something out there that was uh, sort of actively seeking out what we do at Inkstick Media and what we do on the podcast is really actively seek out uh, a diverse range of voices. So that means talking to women and people of color. That means talking to people on the ground who are actually experiencing the impacts of our foreign policy decisions and of our national security decisions. Um, and that means really getting in there and and doing the kind of reporting that I think the broader national security foreign policy analysis space really wasn't doing. And so that was something that I wanted to do and and get in and and really talk to people and also showcase and highlight uh, a variety of voices that that I wasn't hearing from. And as a woman in the field, that was uh, something that was you know particularly important to me. 
because I didn't really feel at the time like I had a place that was being driven by a person like me. Uh, And so this is my attempt at creating that. So this past season, season three of Things That Go Boom, we uh, really decided to head into the season with with one big question in mind, which is what is this thing that we're calling great power competition and and how are we going to approach it as a country? How are we going to approach this future relationship with China and Russia? Um, and, and what does that look like? What does the word competition even mean when we're really digging down deep into it? And as we were producing this season, uh, coronavirus hit. And so we sort of did a really quick pivot to uh, talk more about coronavirus in sort of this space of, of great power competition. But they also really, we found, were, were quite related. And this episode speaks directly to the place we were in where really we were struggling with that, this idea of, of whether China was doing better at responding to the virus than we were as a country. And whether the U.S. uh, was really kind of showing its hand after years of investing in really expensive foreign wars and uh, not necessarily investing as heavily in things like pandemic preparedness or uh, some of the other issues that folks have at home. So this episode is called While We Were Sleeping, and it really asks the question, was the U.S. sleeping through China's rise? That was host and executive producer Lacey Healy from Things That Go Boom. Now let's listen to the episode While We Were Sleeping. It was first aired in June. For a lot of the world, the U.S. response to coronavirus has looked like a shambles. Not long after the virus hit our shores, medical workers were left begging for thermometers, body bags, and masks, using trash bags as makeshift gowns. And the whole thing reinforces this idea that was already out there, that the United States is falling behind. The pandemic has shown that the world's supposed superpower hasn't been able to handle its own crisis. It highlights for much of the world, and especially for America's adversaries, that despite this whole idea of American exceptionalism, the U.S. has some deep-seated problems that go way beyond coronavirus. It's your roads, it's your bridges, it's your schools. Kishore Mabubani is a political scientist and former president of the U.N. Security Council. And he's been thinking a lot about this debate. In his new book, he asks us to consider a simple question. Has China won? Today, if you want to experience a third world airport, you go to Kennedy Airport in New York. Yes, American airports have their problems, like the alligator found wandering through Chicago's O'Hare. Yes, the American... Oh, you can take the train from Boston to New York, <laughs> which is considered the uh, fast train. And it's amazing how bad it is, you know? Uh-huh, the Acela, I have been on that yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> the Acela is such a tragic train. Why had we slowed to a crawl? Uh, because... There's a New Jersey transit train going into Penn Station ahead of us, and we have exactly two tracks under that river, and we get this kind of congestion all the time. By international standards, the Acela is a little tragic. In 2015, its average speed clocked in at 68 miles per hour, and our airports aren't much better. And if you want to experience a first world airport, you go to Beijing or Shanghai. 
And if you want to take a fast train, you take the fast train from Shanghai to Beijing, which I have taken, which goes at 700 kilometers an hour. Here's a detail that my four-year-old would love. The train from Shanghai Airport doesn't even touch the tracks. It hovers over them on a magnetic buffer. At almost 270 miles per hour, it's the fastest commercially operated train in the world. You know, in the same period where China has invested so much in building up its physical infrastructure and its intellectual infrastructure, uh, America has not been making the same investments. America, he's saying, get dressed, because China was up at dawn. I'm Lacey Healy, and this is Things That Go Boom, your friendly neighborhood national security podcast. This episode, we ask, how did we get here? If the U.S. can't build better airports or trains than China, or even take care of itself in times of major crisis like the coronavirus, how exactly is it supposed to beat China in this global competition we're in? Mabubani says, just a few short decades ago, the U.S. looked a whole lot friendlier and shinier to China. In fact, Southeast Asia looked up to the U.S. as a leader and a game changer. Mabubani says his own life is a perfect example. He grew up in Singapore. Well, you know, we live in a relatively poor neighborhood. There were six of us uh, living in a, a one-bedroom house. With a, we're paying a rent of uh, about six U.S. dollars a month. And we didn't have a flush toilet, but there was a crime in our neighborhood. We could see gangsters fighting each other and sort of tearing up each other with broken beer bottles. And indeed, at the age of six, when I first went to school, the principal weighed all of us and he picked out 10 or 12 boys who were technically undernourished. And I was one of them, and I was put on a special feeding program when I was uh, six years old. But the reason why I succeeded is that as a child, I discovered a small public library about a kilometer from my house. And I began borrowing books and reading books in English, written by very distinguished Western authors. And I realized the reason why Asia is rising now is that the West has been very generous uh, with the gift of Western wisdom to the rest of the world, especially the gift of Western reasoning. And that is now spreading through the rest of the world and is lifting up the lives of lots of millions and billions of poor people in the same way that my life was uplifted by Western wisdom. Mabubani is referring to the Western brand, free markets, entrepreneurship, good governance. But he says today... The U.S. is not always seen as an exceptional Western country. China, meanwhile, is ascendant. And for some, the coronavirus put an exclamation point on this shift. China did suppress early warnings about the disease, and there were other missteps. But the U.S. also struggled. As of this recording, the U.S., with less than 5% of the world's population, has recorded almost 30% of the world's coronavirus deaths. So you're talking about 22 million deaths. And so if we could hold that down, as we're saying to 100,000, it's a horrible number. And so we have between 100 and 200,000. We all together have done a very good job. Mabubani says the writing was on the wall, though, decades ago. 
and he points to one event in particular as a big blinking neon signpost. November of 1991. Astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. The wall that the East Germans put up in 1961 to keep its people in will now be breached by anybody who wants to leave. So I was feeling completely uh, puzzled uh, by what was going on because I thought the Soviet Union was going to last another hundred years. So it was one of the most stunning developments that I've experienced in my life. It came completely out of the blue. He says the news was intoxicating, but in a kind of literal way. It left the U.S. drunk with a sense of triumphalism and hubris. You know, I happened to be in Harvard in 91, 92, and I was shocked to discover how arrogant uh, many American intellectuals had begun And of course, they had all, I guess, as you say, uh, inhaled the smoke from uh, Francis Fukuyama's famous essay, The End of History, which said that all of humanity had come to an end of history and there's only one path for the world to follow, which was to become carbon copies of Western liberal democratic societies. And of course, for 1800, after the last 2000 years, The two largest economies of the world have always been those of China and India. So the last 200 years of uh, Western domination have been an enormous historical aberration. And that essay, as I've argued many times, did tremendous brain damage to the West because it put the West to sleep at precisely the moment when China and India decided to wake up. The other flashpoint? comes 12 years later, in 2001. And this one kind of slips under the radar. If a historian is writing the history of the world 1,000 years from now, and if you are asked to say what were the most significant events that happened, right, as the third millennium began, he would point to China's joining of the WTO. Because when China joined the World Trade Organization, it suddenly injected about 900 million, that's three times the population of the United States, into the global uh, capitalist system. And amazingly, there there was an remarkable degree of complacency. Basically, Mabubani is saying America just didn't adapt fast enough to the cheaper Chinese labor, outsourced jobs, and increased competition. America thought, we have won. We can just go coasting on. We don't have to change or adjust. Of course, Europe did the right thing and invested a lot in uh, retraining of its workers. America didn't do so at all. And the consequence is that over a 30-year period, between 1980 and 2010, America became the only major developed country where the average income of the bottom 50, 50%, went down. And that's a perfect example of what happens when you go to sleep. The people suffer. At the end of World War II, the U.S. accounted for 50% of global GDP. Today, it's just a little over 20%. If you adjust for purchasing power, as in how much we can buy for the money we make, China overtook the U.S. to become the world's largest economy about five years ago. And before the coronavirus upended everything, Economists estimated that China would become the world's outright largest economy 
in 10 to 15 years. And are are there specific things that you can point to that that might have changed, such as, you know, opportunities or travel or education, uh, the ways in which the, the average person might have seen these impacts? One of the saddest pieces of data, which I document in my book, Has China Won, is that two-thirds of American families do not have $500 in emergency cash. You know, that's a sign of tremendous social distress. So I think the the bottom 50% in America, even if they had worked very hard, would have found the playing field was not a level one and they had to try and kick the football uphill and the people in the top 0.1% or top 1% had to kick the football downhill. I, I want to circle back to China just a little bit during those same 30 years. If you can just compare and contrast how life is changing during those 30 years for the average Chinese citizen versus the average American citizen. Well, I, you know, I first went to China in 1980. And when I went there, China was still a very traditional communist country, even though it was gradually opening up. And the Chinese people were not allowed to choose where to live, what to wear, where to study, where to work. And certainly the Chinese were not allowed to travel overseas as tourists. Today, the same Chinese have the freedom to choose where to live, where to work, what to wear, what to study. And each year, 134 million Chinese leave China freely. And guess what? 134 million, which is more than one-third the population of the United States, goes back to China freely. So if China was still a dark communist gulag, would 134 million Chinese go back to China? So clearly something fundamental has changed in China, and America hasn't understood that change. To be fair, some Chinese are more free than others. Since early 2017, the government is engaged in the de-extremification of up to a million Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and other ethnic minorities, forcing them into internment camps in Xinjiang. And religious figures, intellectuals, academics, and others are regularly detained for speaking out against the government. And Americans have sort of historically and even now had a hard time wrapping their minds around China. And one of the ways that that manifests today is, is that they really can't understand how many Chinese people are supportive of their government. Can you speak a little bit to that? You're right. I mean, they, they cannot understand the fact that even though China lives in a country run by the Communist Party of China, the Communist Party of China has delivered a far greater improvement in the lives of ordinary Chinese than any previous Chinese government has done in 3,000 years. So if you, if you are a very poor Chinese who, who had experienced famines, who didn't have enough to eat, who couldn't send his children to school, who had to struggle with a basic income, suddenly the last 30 years 
have been the best 30 years ever in Chinese history. And, and then you say, why should I change my government? You know? But I think many of the American reactions to China are not driven by any rational calculations, but driven by a deep emotional undercurrent, a deep fear and distrust of what is called the yellow race. And that also explains, in, in many cases, why many Americans fail to understand China, because they cannot, they cannot even conceive of the possibility that a society like China could thrive and do well. When we come back, we try to understand how this lack of understanding and, well, the coronavirus could be leading us to war. The United States hasn't yet made the kind of evaluations of what trade-offs we might need to accept in order to live with China as, as a risen power. Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and Seek the truth with an open mind. If the U.S. failed to see what was coming its way when China joined the WTO in 2001, it's probably worth mentioning that there was something else happening that year, something that had nothing to do with China. Well, we understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. After 9-11, the U.S. embarked on a series of expensive wars in the Middle East that have punctuated all of our lives. I think sometimes the point is made that 9-11 distracted the United States from China's rise. But I think that's actually the wrong lesson to be learned. That's Rachel Esplin O'Dell. She's a research fellow in the East Asia program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And she's also an international security fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. The mistake was that we tried to use military force to bend the world to our will and that U.S. officials distorted intelligence and manipulated claims about Iraqi WMDs in ways that misled the American people and enabled the Bush administration's rush to war against Iraq. And so the risk is that that's what the Trump administration is doing in this present moment, where they're releasing claims about the origins of this virus that that seem to imply that China did this in some malicious way. And Mr. Secretary, have you seen anything that gives you high confidence that it originated in that Wuhan lab? Martha, there's enormous evidence that that's where this began. And that it's responsible for all the death and suffering that's taking place in the United States. I would like to begin uh, by announcing some important developments in our war against the Chinese virus. But it's not just the U.S., China's been at it, too. The theory that the U.S. started the virus is mainstream in China. Government-controlled Xinhua tweeted an animation further mocking the U.S.'s blaming of China. Are you listening to yourselves? We are always correct, even though we can't... When Americans are experiencing a lot of fear and uncertainty, that can provide an opening for people who want the United States to pursue a more hostile or zero-sum approach to foreign relations to push their agendas. And that's where we stand in this moment. 
So that risks pushing us into a Cold War with China. And it's hard to understate the risks here. If you were, as Mabubani says, sleeping when China woke up, here's what you're waking up to on the military front. China's military doesn't look quite like the U.S. It has two aircraft carriers. The U.S. has 11. Certainly, China wants much more global power and influence, but it doesn't want global military primacy in in anything like the United States has. It just is not building the kind of military capacity that would at all compare to the United States. Instead, China's forces aimed at countering the U.S. locally, and a lot of military analysts say it's working. Some believe China has more or less leveled the playing field along the East Asian coastline, or even gained the upper hand. And one reason they think that is that the U.S. regularly loses to China in war games, where even our aircraft carriers are forced to sail away to escape an attack. I don't think the stakes could be much higher. This is the number one, number two powers in the world. We could be talking about inadvertent escalation to to nuclear conflict, which oftentimes is underappreciated. And the consequences of war aren't just in lives lost, though lives could certainly be lost. Mabubani says, look again at 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq. Look how much that cost us. Some economists have predicted that America may have wasted $3 trillion on that conflict. And if you can imagine the $3 trillion being spent on the American people to provide health, education, and jobs instead of fighting an unnecessary war, the American people would have been much, much better off today. And it was a completely unnecessary war because America accomplished nothing. And today, when America complains about Iranian influence in Iraq, very few Americans are aware that the main uh, dam that was preventing Iranian influence from entering Iraq was Saddam Hussein. And America broke the dam. And when America broke the dam, it was perfectly natural for Iran to recover its influence among the dominant Shiite majority in Iraq. And, you know, frankly, if you don't have a comprehensive global policy, it means that America is constantly giving geopolitical dividends to China. So I can tell you, if, if, for example, the United States ends up in a war with Iran, I wouldn't be surprised if the champagne pops in Beijing because they say, well done. America will now be distracted for another 10 years in another uh, useless war in the Middle East, and China will keep rising. So if China, if America had a comprehensive global strategy to deal with China, the first thing it should do is stop fighting wars in the Middle East. And every war, every every intervention, whether it's Yemen, Syria, Libya, Iraq, is a gift to China. So I have a little bit of a provocative question for you. But if you were to be born in either China or the U.S. today as a, a poor, malnourished child, which would you choose? Well, the answer to that question is given by an American philosopher called John Rawls. And the question is, would you rather choose to be born in the bottom 10% in America or the bottom 10% in China? And there's absolutely no doubt 
that if you had to make a choice in that dimension, if you're born in the bottom 10% in America, your likelihood of going to jail, of suffering from opioids, of dying early, are so much higher than if you were born in the bottom 10% in China. So if you did not know which class you're going to be born into, then I would say you would choose to be born in China. But of course, if you knew for certain you're going to be born in the top 10%, then I would say you should be born in America. With that in mind, it turns out I had one more provocative question for Mabubani. So has China won? Well, I think uh, you have to read my book. <laughs> okay, but I'll be fair to you. I'll give you the answer. I'll give you the answer. The answer to the question, has China won, is no. Or more accurately, not yet. Well, I think we are seeing the beginning of a major geopolitical contest between the United States and China. And it will last for the next 10 or 20 years. And it's almost like watching an unstoppable train wreck. You can see the two trains coming towards each other. You can see the disaster coming, but you cannot stop it. So time to wake up. What can the U.S. begin to do to turn around the relationship? Do you have suggestions? To, to put it very simply, if China was a company and America was a company and not a country, they would see the synergies within the two companies and they would immediately collaborate. If the primary goal of the American government is to improve the well-being of 330 million Americans, it should completely withdraw from the Middle East and spend the money on taking care of its own people. And China should take care of its own people. And they can both work together to take care of their own people. I mean, that's a fundamental common interest that United States and China have. Rachel Odell's on board with that. She says the question isn't, has China won? This isn't about trying to beat China. This is about trying to beat climate change. This is about trying to beat pandemics. If we both strive to win, then we could both end up losing. It's not exactly a crazy suggestion. Rachel pointed out that the U.S. and China have worked together in the past, like during the SARS outbreak in 2003. Afterward, they even came up with 10 core principles of global pandemic response. But today... The U.S. is so worried about competition, it can't be bothered to clean its own house. And the problem with that is, this isn't the last global crisis we're going to face. I want to thank Lacey Healy for sharing her podcast with us. That was the episode While We Were Sleeping from Things That Go Boom. For more information, check out Lacey's website at inkstickmedia.com. And that does it for this episode of Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you want to suggest a great podcast for us, we're all ears. You can email us at podcast at foreignpolicy.com. If you want to suggest a great podcast, we're all ears. You can email us at podcast at foreignpolicy.com. And for more information about FP Podcasts, check out our website, foreignpolicy.com, or join our Facebook group. 
Today's show was produced by Darcy Palder, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. Our theme music was composed by Nolan Schneider. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, and I'll see you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 